Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackler. Just for fun, go and pull out a copy of the originally published version of the bestseller, What Color Is My Parachute? Originally published in 1970, very few jobs today were listed as a part of that book. And remember that that came out 46 years ago, just as the boomers were going into the workforce. Today's changes, human, technological, and social, are happening at a geometrically much faster pace. Imagine what the workplace will look like 46 years from now. Children entering school today will work in a world that has almost no relationship to today's world. The jobs, the skills, the workplace, and the products will be vastly different. Given this, how do we plan? How do we teach our kids, shape public policy, and prepare for a fourth industrial revolution that will happen even if we do nothing to get ahead of it? We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Alec Ross. He's one of America's leading experts on innovation. He served as senior advisor for innovation for Secretary of State Clinton during her time in the State Department. He's currently a distinguished visiting fellow at Johns Hopkins University. He serves as an advisor to investors, corporations, and governments. It is my pleasure to welcome Alec Ross here to talk about his new book, The Industries of the Future. Alec Ross, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. You know, some of the scariest words you can hear on Wall Street sometimes is, is when somebody says, this time it's different. As we look at the future and look out at some of the changes that are coming, it's fair to say, I think, that this time it really is different, that the pace of change, the reality of change is really fundamentally different than what we've been dealing with for the past 50 years. You know, it, it's fascinating. One of the characteristics of today's economy is that things that previously would have taken 10 or 15 years to develop economically, technologically, scientifically, are now developing in two or three years. And so we're seeing, you know, really disorienting changes in the kinds of products and services that people can buy and sell, but also in the labor that's producing them. So, it, as I say, the 21st century is a terrible time to be a control freak. What's what's true today is not necessarily going to be true in three, five, seven years. And yet, when we talk about these things, either in, in social context or in political context or policy context, we seem to be focusing in so many of the wrong areas. You know, we're still having debates about trade and workers in, in China or Vietnam or Mexico, when in fact the workers of the future, the concerns of the future, are about artificial intelligence and robotics. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, when we sort of throw mud balls rhetorically and politically uh, at, you know, immigrant labor or at China or at this one or at that one, it's really trying to find somebody to be mad at. Um, it's trying to justify the anxiety that so many people feel. You know, I grew up in, in West Virginia, and West Virginia has had a lousy economy for the last several decades. And, you know, it's, it's so disappointing when I go back there and hear the hatred toward immigrant labor or the blame uh, of so, much jo so many jobs now being in India or China. And what that really is, is, is I understand where it comes from emotionally and culturally. It comes from a need to, you know, find the bad guy. But the gosh honest truth is that if the United States is going to continue to be as strong economically tomorrow as it was yesterday and it is today, then those growing middle classes in China, in India, in, in, in Mexico are going to be the people who are building our products and services. 
And to your point, the real threat, you're absolutely right. It is artificial intelligence. Artif- art- the combination of artificial intelligence and, and advanced robotics is going to significantly impact what labor looks like in 10 years, if not sooner. I mean, we talk about the labor involved in manufacturing, making automobiles, for example. You go into a modern factory today, the factory, you know, here in Northern California, in fact, that that turns out Teslas, and it's 80% robotic. It's remarkable. There's very little human interaction involved. Well, and it's going to change further. I think that the robots of the cartoons and movies from the 1970s are going to be the reality of the 2020s. And there are two real reasons for this. The first is uh, what's called mapping belief space. So this means that taking things that historically have been very difficult to program for robots, like grasping. Grasping might seem like a relatively straightforward thing. It's actually very complex to model out algorithmically and to program for robots. But there have been breakthroughs in mathematics that have now allowed us to create robots that instead of being dominantly two-dimensional, are now three-dimensional. And the second big development is cloud robotics. So, you know, let's imagine that C-3PO interrupted us right now. Let's say he walked into the studio. He may say, oh, excuse me, oh my, and, you know, wander out of the studio, get on out of there. Now, in the Star Wars version of C-3PO, the movie from the 1970s, In order for C-3PO to be able to walk into a studio, have the cognition to recognize that he had interrupted us, have the verbal ability to excuse himself, and then the mobility to walk out, we're talking about a robot that, if somebody actually had to build it today, would be hundreds of millions of dollars. But because of cloud robotics, the real-world C-3PO of the 2020s will be an Internet-connected device. So if he walked into the studio right now, he would ping the cloud and would get instructions algorithmically that that would say, excuse yourself, excuse yourself in English and get out of there. And what this means in terms of labor is that instead of having to spend millions of dollars to buy robots that can do the work that was previously done by men with strong shoulders, now the robots are cheaper and cheaper And so the warehouses and the factories are going to be more and more full of these cloud-connected robots that aren't just doing work that is manual and routine, but is able to do work that is cognitive and non-routine. We've seen a couple of models of this already coming down the road, one with respect to cloud computing, netbooks, net computing, the, the idea that the device itself can be much smaller because it's cloud connected. And, and we see it every day with things like Siri on our phones, which are cloud connected. No, that, that's exactly right. So the cloud is what's really going to change robotics here. And, and let me tell you, let me see if I can explain what this means in terms of labor. This was explained to me by a guy named Terry Gu. And Terry Gu is the CEO of Foxconn. You know, Foxconn is that big old Taiwanese company, 973,000 employees that makes all of the Apple and Samsung devices. And when I talked to Terry Gu, the CEO of a company that employs 973,000 people, he said to me, I'm not hiring any more humans. And I said, what do you mean you're not hiring any more humans? He goes, humans 
are little CapEx, all OpEx. Robots are all CapEx, no OpEx. And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, when you hire a human, there aren't that many upfront costs. Maybe you give them a business card. Maybe you buy them a computer for their desk. But every two weeks, they want a salary, high operating expenses. No capital expenses, high operating expenses. He goes, robots are the exact opposite. He goes, they're very high capital expenses. You have to buy the robot. He goes, but after you buy the robot, it's almost no operating expenses. You can work them 24 hours a day. They don't want a salary. They're not going to join a union. They're not going to get pregnant or sick. He goes, so I'm done with humans. I'm only buying robots. And when the guy who basically created the model for, you know, football stadium-sized factories where low-cost Chinese labor is manufacturing our iPhones and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip the low-cost Chinese labor and replace them with robots. This, I think, portends something very scary for the future. Another area where we're seeing a potential similar dramatic change is in all this discussion, which is all very fanciful right now, about driverless cars and what that means for all those people that are employed in work that involves driving. You know, I take a net positive view of the idea of a driverless car. And, you know, I guess I ought to say, you know, most people who write books about the future, they're either utopian or dystopian. It's either, oh, we're going to live to be 150 years old, happy, healthy, wealthy, and wanting for nothing. Or it's the opposite. It's written from the fetal position with fists clenched. And I'd like to think that the end, and honestly, I think that life is a little bit more up the middle. And my book, The Industries of the Future, is a little bit more up the middle. And this topic of driverless cars, I think, really brings that out. So, look, the number one source of employment for men in the United States is driving a vehicle, whether that's a bus, a FedEx, delivery truck, uh, you know, a car, a taxi truck, whatever it is, it's number one. And so if those are replaced uh, by autonomous vehicles, obviously that means a lot of labor loss. But there are other very significant impacts to society. Number one, about 3 million people globally die every year in car crashes. If we're going to replace the driver behind the wheel um, we're going to do so in significant measure because it's safer. safer. Uh, so thing one is fewer dead people. Benefit number two is think about all of that time we now waste, you know, driving that isn't as productive as we might like it to be. You know, God bless the people who are listening to the industries of the future on audiobook as they're driving. Mm-hmm. I like that. But, you know, most of us feel like we're sort of wasting time or it's not the highest and best use of our time when we've got our hands on the steering wheel. And if suddenly we're able to use that time doing whatever else, then it creates consumer surplus. So I do think that this topic of driverless cars contributes to both the promise of the future as well as the peril of the future. One of the things that all of this portends is a dramatic amount of social change in response to all of this. Talk a little bit about that and where you see the inflection points in terms of that social transformation and social unrest coming about. Yeah, great question. So we created a social compact 
uh, when the industrial you know, with industrialization, we created a social compact. We created the 40-hour work week, uh, free public education, employer-based health insurance. You know, all of these other things that came with industrialization that were sort of, a, it was a compact. It was a compact between the employer and the employed, between government, employer, and employed. Uh, we don't yet have that social compact for the information economy. And that's where I think we see a lot of the the spear chucking politically taking place. Um, and I do think that we are going to have to develop a social compact for the information age, lest there be more social unrest. So I think, for example, about the gig economy. Um, you know, I am all in favor of companies like Uber and Airbnb uh, being able to innovate and develop new business models. But we have to have our eyes open and recognize that if those jobs don't have things like uh, like workers' comp if somebody gets hurt on the job or health insurance or, you know, family leave if a loved one gets very severely ill, then the burden that during the industrial age would have been on the employer is now shifted to government and the taxpayer. And so we've got to ask ourselves hard questions about as we transform from an industrial economy into a knowledge, into a, a knowledge economy, what is the new social compact? And absent a compact, I think we are going to see the political right going more and more and more to the right and the political left going more and more and more to the left. And, you know, we will see much more of these political extremes in the United States than we're used to seeing. We're already seeing it in this presidential election. Right. But, but what it also means is more and more influence being wielded by other places in the world that are getting out ahead of this. I mean, in terms of the social unrest you're talking about, if you look towards Scandinavia, certainly you, you see more experimentation with things like guaranteed or base income and, and whether that's a solution to this. You look at Japan as you talk about it, their whole attitude towards robotics and family is entirely different. The broader danger for America, for the U.S. and all of this, is that other places in the world are dealing with this in terms of the social change, in terms of the policy, and getting much further out ahead of what the reality will be from a technological point of view. You know, you're absolutely right. And let me point, you know, let me point to the area where I think dramatic action is needed sooner than later. And that is in our K-12 education system, and in our community colleges. Uh, so, you know, the area where I think we're most lagging is our educational outputs in public schools, kindergarten through 12th grade, are not mapping to where the job growth is. If you're in vocational ed, and, you know, look, a lot of people might sneer when they talk about vocation, you know, discussing things like vocational education or community college, but the God's honest truth is that those serve millions and millions and millions of very vulnerable Americans. And so one of the, it's, it's not a sexy thing to talk about, but I think really important for us to examine the delivery of things like vocational education and community college and do what the Germans and the Norwegians and many others have done and pivot the delivery of those kinds of programs into fields where we know there will be high growth. If we're going to have a robotic future, 
then let's be the place where we do the manufacturing, where we do the design and manufacturing of the robots because we've got the best prepared workforce. If, you know, let's make sure we're in a position to tell the machines what to do instead of the machines telling us what to do. The other part of that is looking at the softer skills that will be necessary in the future and that the STEM skills, science, technology, engineering, math, that those are all important skills looking down the road, but not unless they're combined with a sense of, of the humanities as well. That's, I'm in violence agreement with you on that point. So everybody talks about STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, and it's important. But I think when you talk about tomorrow's leaders, who are going to be those people who really compete and succeed in the industries of the future? It's going to be those people who have been interdisciplinary learners. They have an understanding of things that are technological or scientific, but they also have things like really strong communication skills, or they have an understanding of behavioral psychology. You know, I point to Facebook as an example. Everybody thinks that Facebook is a product of a brilliant computer scientist named Mark Zuckerberg, and that's true. But what I believe is that Facebook is what it is as much because Mark Zuckerberg has a keen understanding of behavioral psychology mm -hmm. as whatever skills he has as a computer scientist. So I think the combination of skills in the humanities with some technological and scientific fluency, those are tomorrow's real leaders. As we look at this from a policy perspective, one of the other areas that you spend a lot of time talking about in the book is, is DNA, genetic code, life sciences, biotechnology, all the changes taking place in that area. And what that leads us to is a world in which people are living much longer, staying healthy much longer, but also a world where, given all the other things we're talking about, there'll be a lot less work and a lot less jobs. You're right. So... This is an area, going back to my point, where I take a balanced view of this. The, you know, the commercialization of genomics contributes to both the promise and peril of our future. So in terms of its promise, you know, first of all, economically, the world's last trillion-dollar industry was created out of computer code. The world's next trillion-dollar industry is going to be created out of genetic code. You know, our ability to, to, to develop precision medicines um, and new diagnostic tools are going to add years of life expectancy to, uh, to Americans on a per capita basis. The downside of this, in part, is, first of all, it's going to advantage the wealthy first because the people who are able to avail themselves of these medicines are going to be those who can pay for it out of pocket um, before they're picked up by health insurance programs. And the second thing, and this is where we have to ask ourselves tough questions, is with people living longer lives, it means they're going to be outside of the, work, the workforce for longer. So that, again, tests our safety net. You know, my grandmother died two weeks ago at the age of 99. Uh, and, you know, she hadn't been economically productive, so to speak, for decades. And her safety net in this case was her family um, and our ability to take care of her. But we can't, but that's not going to be true for everybody. So it's wonderful that we'll all be able to live longer lives, um, again, on a per capita basis. But I do think it makes us question all right, in this world, 
what is the safety net so that as people grow older, they don't, so many do not grow poor and destitute. The theme that we seem to be coming back to in all of these areas, in, in whichever area we go and explore this, is the way in which technology and social change really have to go hand in hand. And it doesn't seem that as a society we're having the conversations that are allowing that to happen. I, I agree with that. You know, I think that I, I believe that technological and scientific progress are a net good. They are largely positive for society. However, we, 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 in the face of fast-developing technology and science, it becomes more important than ever for us to assert our human values. We cannot take an entirely hands-off approach to how science and technology shapes our future. Let's not just give ourselves up to the machine. Uh, you know, so I, I do strongly believe that from a policy standpoint, if the development of all of this technology, if artificial intelligence, if the commercialization of genomics are going to shape our world more than anything else over the next 15 years, then our policymakers have got to take a very mature approach to, to thinking about, all right, well, what are, what are the policies we need in place to make sure that people are prepared to compete and succeed in this world, that there's as much equity as possible, that, you know, the, the technology and science isn't used as a way of exploiting people. So in the face of this very fast change pace, it's never been more important to assert our human values. And yet to really look at examples, coming back to what we were talking about before, you've got to look at what's going on in Scandinavia and some of those experiments and places like Estonia where they seem to be ahead in a lot of these areas. You know, I, I think that, look, I am as proud an American as anybody. I'm a red, white, and blue patriotic American. But that doesn't mean that I don't think we can learn things from other countries. Uh, you know, you mentioned Estonia. You know, Estonia, this little Baltic country that 20 years ago had bread lines, you know, literally long lines of people, you know, waiting to get a piece of bread, to get a loaf of bread that they would use to feed their family for the day. This was 20 years ago. Fast forward to today, and it is, it has the highest per capita income of any of the former socialist republics. It is creating spectacular technologies like Skype. The quality of living is really high. And what we could learn from a, a place like Estonia is some of what they've done in education. So kids, beginning when they are 10 years old in public schools, they're all learning a foreign language and they're all learning a computer language. So that by the time they are 18, every public school student is multilingual and, and fluent uh, in, in computers. That is spectacular. Um, and, and those are the kinds of things that we need to be doing in our schools. You know, my wife, who's a lot smarter than I am and a lot more capable than I am, is a sixth grade math teacher. And all three of our kids, we've got a 13-year-old, an 11-year-old, and a 9-year-old. They go to the neighborhood public school um, because we're committed to public schools. But what we do is my wife and I, we identify what the gaps are, what are they not getting in their public education, and where there is a gap, we fill it. So, for example, they weren't learning foreign languages. 
so, you know, my oldest son is taking Mandarin. Uh, you know, my daughter, my 11-year-old daughter, wasn't getting any kind of real science in the classroom, so she's taking an after-school robotics class. So in addition to our policymakers needing to take action, and we do need to hold our policymakers to account, it's also important, I think, for those of us who are parents to make sure we are filling the gaps. What is the role of business in all of this, of the private sector, of venture capital, of, of big corporations, and even of entrepreneurs? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I mean, first, the job of all of these people is to maximize shareholder value. Um, you know, when governments, I mean, when businesses try to play the role of government, you know, the, the results are oftentimes mixed. You know, what I do hope is that businesses, investors, entrepreneurs work with a social conscience, um, that they do give back. Uh, but I, I think that the solutions to these problems, if just business is going to produce the solutions to these problems, um, I'm a little worried because at the end of the day, what they are, what they are tasked to do is to maximize profit and minimize loss. I do think that once people have made money, uh, I really appreciate those who think about how to take their skills and all the money they've made and figure out how to give it back. I mean, let's go back to Mark Zuckerberg, who I mentioned earlier mm-hmm. in the conversation. The fact that he and his wife have created a trust uh, with which they say they will give, na- give away 99% of their wealth during their lifetime, I think that's a big deal. Um, and, you know, 99% while they're still alive, I think that's spectacular. And so I do think that people like Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg, um, who before they've grown old, uh, are doing these kinds of things, I think that they are positioned to be the Rockefellers and the Carnegies um, of the 21st century in terms of what they've given back to society. How much do we need to continue to look at this in a global context? We talked about some of the things going on around the world in these areas. The, the importance, talk about the importance of looking at this in a global context. You know, I think that we're, we're all playing on a 196-country chessboard right now. Uh, and, you know, when we build products, you know, that most of those that grow big are those that are built from, for global markets from the outset. The tricky bit here, though, is that there oftentimes are such different values um, around these issues that we've been discussing. Um, so, you know, on genomics, for example, we might, if we assert our values on the United States about what people are and are not allowed to do with gene editing and gene manipulation, um, you know, we we say, okay, you can do it to prevent disease, but you can't do it to, you know, change the eye color of your daughter while she's still in utero or something like that. Um, What we have to recognize is that these capabilities aren't reserved exclusively to the United States and that, in fact, um, other countries are, are big stakeholders in this. So I do think that the most effective policymakers and leaders are those who are able to exert influence, not just in the United States and globally. You know, it's part of why, you know, I'm so pleased my book, The Industries of the Future, 
has, it, you know, we've sold the rights for what are now 13 different languages, and it'll be sold around the world. So this is, you know, I wrote my book in part uh, to try to reach as global a market as, possi- as possible. And finally, the other question that it begs in all of this is the way in which it's going to change our understanding of how economics works. The models of the past and the methods of the past won't necessarily work in this new framework. No, that's exactly right. I, I think about like GDP, gross domestic product. I think that using GDP as a measure of economic well-being is growing less and less relevant because the economy might be growing, so GDP going up, but if the economic beneficiaries of that economic growth are relatively small, if we're creating more and more billionaires, but the size of the middle class is growing, I don't think GDP is necessarily a very good measure of economic well-being. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's an oversimplified terms. But I do think that in the same way in which I said we need to create an, a social compact for the information age like we had a social compact for the industrial age, so too do we need, an, do we need economic models for the information age and not just continuing the economic models of the industrial age, because the dynamics are far different today than they were 40 years ago. Alec Ross, his book is The Industries of the Future. It's just out from Simon & Schuster. Alec, I thank you so much for spending time with us. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.